Ladies and gentlemen, before we get to today's episode, I have a question for you. What's the one item in your bag that you're going to use the most during a round? So your putter? Nope. Your favorite iron? Nope. Your arm to flag the beverage cart? Maybe, but no. The real answer is your range finder. All golfers need a range finder that they can trust to know the precise distance to their target for nearly every shot, whether you're on the tee box or in the fairway. The No Laying Up team, from the scummy C-suite to us strap boys, carry Precision Pro Golf range finders. They're the perfect combination of performance and price. Listeners of the Trap Draw can receive an extra $20 off Precision Pro Golf range finders by using the coupon code TRAPDRAW at checkout. Again, that's TRAPDRAW, one word, at checkout. Precision Pro Golf is the only range finder that offers free battery replacement services. So you're not only getting a range finder, you're signing up for a lifetime service. Go to precisionprogolf.com, use the coupon code TRAPDRAW at checkout for $20 off our favorite range finder. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Now on to today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of The Trap Draw. I have a very special guest, a very timely guest. I'm not sure if everybody knows. I hope you do. This week is championship week in college basketball, selection Sunday, this Sunday, and I thought uh, no better guest than uh, Mr. Matthew Goodman to have on. He is the author of several books, but the most latest and what we'll be talking about today is called The City Game, Triumph, Scandal, and a Legendary Basketball Team. Matthew, how are you this morning? I'm doing great, Randy. Thank you so much for having me on. And where, uh, for the listeners, where where's home from for you? I live in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, excellent. Um, I picked up your book, oh, the end of 2019. It would have been December 2019. And I, as a former, you know, basketball is, is my first love, played in college, coached a little high school after college. And so I was really excited to dive into the city game. It, I'll, I'll let you explain it, but just very briefly, it covers the City College of New York basketball team uh, in the early 50s. And the only thing I ever knew about them was uh, I, I, I always associated their name with a scandal. And so it was, it was so interesting for me to pick up the book and dive in and, and really get to know the characters and understand, you know, not only the situation with that basketball team, but all of college basketball and all of the city. And so I, I'm hoping, you know, we can share a little of that with the with sure. the listeners and and hopefully they can pick up a copy that's very sure. long-winded i apologize <laughs> where i where i want to start is how how did this story how did this idea get on your radar right well my 
my dad had gone to City College uh, in the in the in the nineteen fifties, just a few years after the events that transpired um, in the story, which we'll talk about in a moment. So, you know, growing up, um, I had sort of, you know, I knew a little bit about it, maybe not much more than you did, you know, just, you know, that there was this kind of legendary college basketball team at City College um, that had achieved something that no team had ever done before or since. And then, as you mentioned, got involved in a uh, subsequent scandal, but I didn't really know that much else about it. And when I was kind of looking around for, you know, my next book, uh, I remembered the story that, you know, my dad had told me when I was, when I was a kid and I began to look into it and I, I, you know, the more I looked into it, the, the richer it got, you know, the more complicated it got, the more interesting, uh, it got, the more, um, sympathetic, I began to feel for some of the individuals who were involved. Um, and that really was the genesis of the story. You know, what we're talking about, we should probably just mention what we're talking about, is the 1949-50 City College Beavers basketball team, right? CCNY, the City College of New York. Uh, they were the only team in the history of college basketball before or since to win uh, the so-called Grand Slam to win both college uh, postseason tournaments, the NCAA and the NIT, in the same year. Uh, so they achieved a kind of unparalleled success. Uh, you know, they went down to the annals of college basketball history. But what was even more amazing about them was that they, you know, this is 1949. This is only two years after Jackie Robinson integrated Major League Baseball. And this is a time when the NBA had no black players in it. You know, the NBA had not yet integrated. Um, at that time, the City College team consisted entirely of minority players. You know, every member of that team was either Jewish or, or African-American. Uh, 11 Jewish players and four African-American players. Um, and they defeated a number of segregated schools along the way, you know, to win this championship. So they became kind of heroes, you know, certainly in New York, but really around the country. They were this incredible underdog team of kind of poor, you know, scrappy city kids. Um, and then, as you mentioned, a year later, uh, they're coming back on a train from a game in Philadelphia against Temple. And they arrive in uh, the train station around 1.30 in the morning, and they're met there by four detectives from the New York City uh, District Attorney's Office. And the star players of the team are arrested and charged with conspiring with gamblers to shave points. Uh, they're taken downtown and interrogated. They end up confessing. Uh, to having shave points in three games during that season. They're thrown out of school. Uh, they're banned for life from the NBA. Some of them actually go to prison. Um, and they go overnight, literally overnight, from heroes to villains. Um, and they spend the rest of their lives kind of in the shadow of that scandal. 
And, you know, that's that's sort of the basic story of it. But, you know, as I discovered in my research for the book, the real story is far more complicated and nuanced than that. Yeah. And I, I think, I, first of all, thank you for providing that kind of rich context. And I, you're absolutely right. I, I think getting to know... Um, not only the, the the members of that basketball team and and the guys who both brought as as your title suggests triumph uh, as well as uh, scandal to you know themselves and and the school, um, mm-hmm. but also you know what I candidly had no idea about, and we don't have to necessarily get into it here, but just the environment of yeah. gambling around New York City. Um, and then specifically, you know, Madison Square Garden and college athletics. You know, that's a big deal. You know, that's a big part of the story. And, you know, really one of the things I wanted to do in this book, uh, you know, I should mention it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a history that I call narrative history. You know, it's all true. Every bit of it is true. I haven't made any of it up. It's all, you know, cited. You know, there are endnotes just like any other work of history, but it's told in a kind of novelistic way. Um, you know, so that it's, I hope it's sort of engaging to the reader and, and, you know, as a story, just as a, you know, as a good, as a good, interesting, um, you know, fast paced story. But, you know, one of the things that I was trying to do in the book was to provide the context in which this scandal happened. You know, I mean, it's so easy just to look at these guys who were involved and say, oh, they were you know, to look at them in kind of a cliched way, the way that newspaper headlines tend to do and just say, well, you know, they were just bad guys. You know, they were immoral. They were greedy, corrupt young guys who were willing to sell out their school for a few bucks. Um, And, you know, that's how they were portrayed in the media. Uh, The real story is a lot more complicated than that. And part of the way that that I'm trying to get that across is by providing, as you mentioned, the context in which all of this happened. And part of the context, and by the way, not to justify anything that they did, that they did but just to try to explain some of it. Um, the, but part of the context is the amount of gambling that was going on, that was accepted uh, in New York City at that time. You know, there were about 4,000 bookmakers, you know, sports bookies in New York at that time. Um, They were about $300,000 that were bet on any college game um, at Madison Square Garden on any given night. Uh, There was bookmaking that was going on inside the garden. It was kind of an open secret. Bookmakers were plying their trade in the garden, um, you know, on 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 a given night. Everybody knew what the point spread of the game was. The point spreads were published in the papers. You know, they were published in the sports sections of the daily papers. This was when it was entirely illegal to be doing that. It wasn't like today, you know, where you have all the, you know, the, the, you know, the betting companies and so forth. Um, this was illegal and yet it was, it was openly done um, in the papers. Um, you know, there was a book, you know, one of the bookies, uh, one of the major bookies in New York who becomes a major character in my, in, you know, in my story. It's a guy named Harry Gross, who was a big time bookmaker in Brooklyn, 
Well, he was doing $20 million a year in sports bets, which translates to over $200 million a year in today's currency. And the way that he was protecting himself was by shelling out a million dollars a year in bribes, what he called ICE, to policemen and politicians to protect his own syndicate. You know, he was, you know, he was, you know, paying cops uh, every other week in the back room of his of his of his uh, headquarters in a uh, restaurant called the dugout. You know, the cops would come in every other week and just line up and receive their envelopes full of cash. Uh, politicians were getting paid off um, by him. Um, you know, that's that's the world in which this was going on. It seemed like everybody was in uh, on the take. And ultimately, as I discovered in the research for my book, the players unknowingly to them, they were just 18, 19 years old. They didn't really know what was going on. They had they had gotten themselves involved in a vast web of corruption that stretched to the very top of the New York City government. You know, that same year of the basketball scandal, both the mayor and the police commissioner of New York ended up having to resign uh, in scandals that were directly or indirectly related to sports bookmaking. It was all around the city. Uh, that, that's part of the context for what, for what the players got themselves involved in. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, I, I want to, I, I definitely want to ask you more about that, but I almost want to go back, you know, to, to the very start. And I, I want to ask you about the city college of New York specifically. And uh -huh. there's, there's a quote, uh, in, in the book early in the book, and you actually quote the author Irving Howe, who it was uh, CCNY class of 1940, and he said, and I'm, I'm quoting uh, Irving Howe here, of all institutions they or their children might encounter in the new world, City College came closest to fulfilling Emerson's promise that this country, the last found, is the great charity of God to the human race. And I, I was just uh, hoping you could, because this was another blind spot for me before reading sure. your book, uh, just the, the history of the City College of New York and what made it such a special, remarkable right. place. Absolutely. And that's part of what made this such a special story was that these kids were, you know, had won this double championship, not just for any school, but for the City College of New York, one of the great institutions in the life of New York, in the history of New York. City College um, had been for generations, uh, uh, it was a merit-based school, okay? You had to take a very rigorous test to get in. It was actually a seven hour long test to get into the school. Um, and you had to have a very high high school grade point average. So it was really for the, the brightest of New York's high school students whose parents could not afford to send them to a private institution because City College was free. It was a free college, a free merit-based college for the smartest of New York's high school students. And, and, you know, in 1949, when our story begins, it was fulfilling the same function that it, it had, you know, when the campus was first built in 1907, you know, to take 
these kids, most of whom were from immigrant families, poor immigrant families, and provide them a college education that was comparable to perhaps any other in the country, anywhere in the country. You know, City College was known as the Harvard of the working class, the working class Harvard. Uh, to this day, I believe this is true, to this day, there were more Nobel Prize winners from City College than from any other college in the world. Uh, I mean, it was an amazing place. Uh, it was an overwhelmingly Jewish school. Uh, it was like 80 percent, 80 to 90% Jewish. Uh, the joke was that CCNY stood for circumcised citizens of New York. Um, and uh, and uh, other people said Christian college now Yiddish. But, uh, you know, it was about it was it was very Jewish and then about 10 percent African-American as well. And and, you know, that ratio was replicated in the basketball team, you know, which, as we mentioned, was. 11 Jewish players and four uh, and four black players. Uh, and they were beloved, you know, they were beloved by by the college, especially um, and really by the city, uh, the city of New York. They seem to represent so much of what New York wanted to believe about itself, you know, that they, they seem to represent racial harmony, civic virtue, the triumph of the underdog, you know. Uh, New York really just just took them to its collective heart um, and and they were heroes. And then ultimately, of course, that's what made the, the fall later on so much greater um, and the, the sense of betrayal so much sharper because they had been so deeply loved before that. Can you touch just touch upon because I think one thing that. Um brings a little bit more context as well. I found it interesting, the attitude on campus towards really intercollegiate sports. I mean, we're not talking about a, you know, modern day Alabama football where <laughs> students oh. and, you know, the, the, the yeah. whole the whole campus is just geared towards athletics. It almost is. Oh. I mean, I'll let you tell it. It's almost like sports were a complete afterthought. I mean, it was hardly, a, you know, a sports factory by any, by any means, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, City College, the basketball team did unite City College, you know. I mean, City College was known, you know, for its academic achievements. It was known for being a very left-wing, po- politically very left-wing school. Uh, but, you know, there was one thing that united the school more than politics more than academics or anything and that was the basketball team having said that city was not known for its athletic achievements by any means other than the basketball team you know the football team for instance you know between the years 1943 and 1946 the city college football team did not win a single game and not only that in the year of 1944 it didn't score a single point during the entire season okay that's how bad the football team was um, at City College, uh, but the basketball team was very good, um, and and that was the thing that really kind of brought the school together was the sense of pride um, in the team and in its coach, uh, who we haven't mentioned yet, who was a legend. I, I, I was going to say, yeah. yeah, that that's where I was going. Uh, yeah, if you could talk about, you know, the essentially the coach was the basketball program there. Right. I'm, well, you know, he, you know, as it turns out, he wasn't actually uh, that he really depended a lot 
on his assistant coach, a guy named Bobby Sand, who was a true basketball genius uh, and sort of unsung, you know, a very modest guy who didn't take credit for a lot of stuff. And Nat Holman, who was the head coach, uh, took credit for a lot of stuff. Okay. Now, but he was legendary. I mean, he was, you know, Nat Holman at this time was 53 years old, but he had been back in his playing days, arguably the greatest basketball player of his time. Um, you know, he's a member of the NBA Hall of Fame. Uh, he was the star player of uh, a touring club called the Original Celtics, which was a famed touring, you know, national touring club back in the 20s. He was the highest paid um, athlete uh, of his time, or basketball player anyway, of his time. He was someone. He was an athlete who had really kind of transcended his sport to become a genuine celebrity. You know, he was, you know, he was in Wheaties ads back in the day. Uh, you know, he was in ads and magazines for Ovaltine and for, you know, Vitalis uh, hair tonic. And uh, I actually discovered in the course of my research that in 1921, uh, the Converse Rubber Company, as it was known then in Malden, Massachusetts, had gone to Nat and offered him 50 bucks a week if he would uh, if he would go around to various sporting goods stores and hawk their new line of high-top rubber sneakers. Um, Nat didn't want to do it. He was already rich. He didn't need the 50 bucks. And so they went to a different popular player of the time, a guy named Chuck Taylor, who turned out to be a very good sneaker salesman, so much so that they put his name on the sneakers. Thus, we have the Chuck Taylor All-Star Sneakers, which might well have been the Nat Holman All-Star Sneakers if he had taken the, if he, if he had taken the gig, uh, which he didn't because he was already kind of too rich and famous for it. But, uh, but that's who Nat was. You know, he was, um, you know, a legendary guy. Um, you know, he kind of was the face of the basketball program. Um, and you know, this double championship only cemented his his legacy. Hey guys, real quick, sorry to interrupt the episode. Unlike NFL quarterbacks, uh, when we have two podcast sponsors, that's actually a good thing. I also want to thank Herbal Active for sponsoring today's podcast, Herbal Active CBD. You can visit their website at herbalactive.com, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. They uh, just sent a shipment of product to the Kill House, mints, balm, uh, drops, and the guys were, it was a feeding frenzy. The the guys love it. Um, Tron swears by it. He's sleeping like a baby. I know Solly and DJ and uh, Neil are, are all on it as well and say nothing but good things. It is 100% THC free. It's legal in all 50 states. encourage you to check it out. Uh, they're a wide assortment of products. See what works for you. I know uh, the most popular NLU regimen is either drops in the morning or drops in the evening and then... Tron loves the mints, which uh, he takes whenever necessary throughout the day. So visit herbalactive.com, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V.com. Be sure to use uh, the promo code TRAPDRAW20 
trap draw 20 to get 20 percent off your order we thank them for their sponsorship and now back to my conversation with matthew goodman uh briefly his assistant bobby sand i i pulled out um i think the quote from the city college of new york uh daily paper in 1947 said uh, talking about his assistant coach bobby sand one of the few men here who is admired and respected by students and faculty alike and um like like you said i just the the real mastermind behind the recruiting the x's and o's and uh, the unsung hero and and almost you know uh, also one of the true tragic figures in the story uh, as well definitely right that's really true uh and you know part of part of what i wanted to do with this book was to was to resuscitate the reputation of bobby sand um you know nat nat was the I spoke to all of the players who were still alive from that team in order to write this book. I was privileged to be able to speak to all of them. Um, and then the ones who aren't still with us, you know, I spoke to their, uh, you know, their widows, their kids, friends and neighbors and so forth, you know, trying to, you know, really get a sense of what uh, life was like, you know, in this team, in this college, you know, and so forth. And the players all told me that Nat was a great, what they called, he was a great practice coach. He was a great gym coach. You know, this was true, I think, this is true, I think, of a lot of great former athletes who go on to become coaches or managers, you know. He was very good at sort of showing technical stuff in the gym, you know, how you guard a man, you know, how to hold the ball when you're passing, uh, and so forth. But he, but he wasn't very good as as a game coach you know he would get he got very easily frustrated with his with with his players and he developed a kind of tunnel vision where he would just focus on the mistakes and he would lose the flow of the game so that sometimes he would you know call timeouts when they no longer had timeouts you know things like that and in fact the game strategy was being run by his assistant bobby sand you know uh, and this wasn't known to the general public, but the players knew it. You know, Bobby would sit next to Nat on the bench and he would whisper in his ear just loud enough for only Nat to hear. You know, Nat, I think it's time to call a timeout. Nat, I think we should we should go to his own defense now. Nat, I think you should take that guy out. Um, and Nat would do it. Um, Nat never told anybody that this was going on. Bobby, you know, who's kind of a modest guy, never felt the need to you know, to announce that information. But Bobby was really the guy who, as you said, you know, kind of organized the X's and O's of plays, organized the defenses, organized, um, you know, the, the, the team strategy and so forth. Uh, he was a wonderful guy. He was a fascinating guy. You know, he spoke five languages. He was a genius, really. Uh, he was the only, he had been a player at City College when he was young. Um, and he was the only player, basketball player in city, in city college history. who was also a Rhodes scholar. Uh, you know, he was really an amazing guy. He taught economics at city college and more than anything, he was a very warm, generous guy. You know, the players loved him, you know, almost to a man. They said to me, my coach was Bobby Sand. You know, he was the guy who would stay late with me after practice working with me. 
you know, he was the guy who I went to when I was having a problem, you know, with a class or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, you know, if I didn't have the money to pay the $40 registration fee, Bobby loaned me the money out of his own wallet, you know, when he didn't really have much money himself, you know, that's the way that Bobby was, you know, there's this Yiddish word mensch, you know, meaning just like a great guy. And that was the word that they all used to describe Bobby Sand. You know, he was a mensch. He was a real mensch. Uh, but then, of course, in the end, when the scandal came, Bobby was the low man on the totem pole. And that proclaimed that he had no idea that any of this was going on. And he ended up kind of skating through. And he stayed as head coach at City until his retirement. And then, as I mentioned, you know, he got voted into the Hall of Fame, the NBA Hall of Fame. Bobby Sand, on the other hand, got the ax. You know, he was the one who took the fall and he got fired as assistant coach, uh, didn't coach again for another 20 years um, and was banned from the classroom, too. You know, he was this wonderful economics professor. It was another 15 years before he was even allowed back uh, into the classroom. So, you know, it's pretty typical, right? The guy at the top skates through when the guy at the bottom ends up taking the fall yeah yeah um i i think as a way of kind of introducing you know bobby was pretty instrumental in bringing together the the guys that would make up this this championship team uh right. through recruiting and, and getting them on campus I, i'm curious in in researching the team uh you mentioned you were able to talk to uh some of the living members uh, in, in person. How I, I'm curious about your process, whether it was something where, you know, you had researched these guys and read about them and were writing about them and, and then went to talk to them, or did you talk to them initially? I, I'm just curious how that, that process yeah. played out for you um, in, in terms of your work. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't want to go to them right off the bat because I wanted to provide myself a, enough of a kind of base of, knowledge to be able to ask just smart questions, you know, um, but, um, but they all agreed, you know, they all agreed to do it. And I'm so grateful to them that they did it. You know, some of them were kind of reluctant to talk to me at first because, you know, it's been 65 years since the scandal and they've, they've spent their lives trying to get out from under, underneath the scandal. And then along comes this guy out of the blue and says, I want to write a whole book about this. Uh, and kind of, you know, dredges up a lot of memories, some of them very joyful, but others kind of painful. Um, so some were a little bit reluctant to talk to me initially. But ultimately, um, I sort of won their confidence. And I spoke to them all on, on multiple occasions. I don't think there were any of them that I only spoke to once. Um, one of them, a guy named Floyd Lane, who's really one of the heroes of the book, uh, he's really an amazing story. Uh, a guy who, you know, he, I ended up spending probably, I'm going to say 12 hours talking to him. Uh, maybe it was more than that. Uh, he's a, a man of almost singular dignity and honor, um, who really hadn't wanted to get involved in the, in the point shaving at all. He had said no on two separate occasions before he finally was kind of worn down and convinced to do it. He, you know, he only did it when he realized that 
all of the other members of the starting five were doing it. Um, and, you know, he took $3,000, which he wrapped up in a handkerchief and buried in a flower pot in his bedroom and never touched any of it except for $110 that he spent to uh, buy his mother a washing machine for Christmas because she had never had a washing machine. Um, but he was arrested, you know, just like the rest of them and, and, and thrown out of college and banned for life from the NBA. He would have surely been a, a star in the NBA like several of his teammates. Spent years trying to get a second chance um, to try to get a tryout for the NBA. You know, he told me, uh, I just wanted five minutes on a court, 10 minutes, you know, that those five minutes could have changed the whole course of my life. But he never did. He never got that opportunity. And he ended up devoting himself to children uh, in community centers, in, in the ghettos of New York in the South Bronx, you know, through really the worst times in New York's history in the 60s and 70s during the fiscal crisis, you know, working with kids to get them off of drugs and out of gangs and away from violence, and helping them get into college. He, he got, by his own estimate, about 400 kids into college. Other people say the number was closer to 1,000. Um, you know, found them scholarship money for tuition and for books. Um, became a kind of father figure to a lot of the kids in the neighborhood. One of them was a kid named Tiny, who we know today as Nate Tiny Archibald, uh, you know, who went on to have a Hall of Fame NBA career with Floyd Lane as his mentor. Uh, so Floyd spent literally decades trying to show the world, actually, not just trying to, actually showing the world that he was not the person that they thought he was, that he was really a good honorable person um and then ultimately in this kind of amazing moment of redemption um that comes near the end of the story um he applies for the job as head coach of city college the city college basketball team and gets the job and 23 years after he is escorted off of the city college campus by two new york city detectives he returns as the new head coach uh, of City College. Uh, it was really an amazing moment of redemption for him. Mm-hmm. And I, I would just tell listeners, uh, I, you go into such great detail on the stories of several of, uh, re- I mean, really the the, the whole starting five and, and the core of, of the team. I mean, you, you mentioned Floyd Lane here, but, you know, the story of Eddie Roman is... Uh-huh. Is really fascinating. Uh, Ed mm-hmm. Warner is is another yeah. guy whose whose yeah. story was um, yeah. very Those powerful. Are the three guys. Yeah. Those are the three main guys that I focus on. You you hit it exactly right. You know, really the heart, the emotional heart of the book is the friendship of these three guys: uh, Floyd Lane, Eddie Roman, and Ed Warner, two African Americans and a, a Jewish player. Uh, it was very unusual, you know, in those days to have such a close friendship, uh, you know, between, you know, white and black players. But they were very close friends and they remained very close friends right up to the very end, um, you know, in this kind of amazing way. Ed Warner was probably the best player on the City College team, would have been a, a, a star in the NBA for sure. Um, but he ended up 
um, getting arrested, and he went to prison. You know, he was one of the uh, uh, three players who ended up going to prison. Two of them were African Americans. There were two of only four out of 33 players uh, uh, involved who were African American, but two of them went to prison. Two of them were really the most talented players of the group. Uh, Ed Warner of City College and a guy named Sherman White from Long Island University who was about to be drafted by the Knicks um, for the NBA. The NBA had integrated by then, but he instead went to prison and then ended up being blacklisted from the NBA. You know, they were the only athletes who went to prison for gambling-related offenses. Uh, even the Chicago Black Sox of 1919, who were trying to lose the games, they never went to prison. Um, but these guys did. Uh, but anyway, Ed Warner would have been a big star uh, and and never made it. But he and Eddie Roman and Floyd Lane were friends right up to the end. Ed Warner ended up having a terrible car accident, was paralyzed for life. Um, Ed Roman and Floyd Lane would sit by his bed in the hospital room and take turns feeding him with a spoon. Eddie Roman uh, tragically died young, 57, of leukemia. Floyd delivers this amazing eulogy, um, which I include at the end of the book, um, where he talks about how he and Eddie Roman were, were brothers, brothers for life, brothers under the skin. Um, it's really a very moving story um, about this friendship, you know, that persisted through triumph and through, through hardship. You paint such a rich picture of of not only the team and and its members, but but also that whole season. I mean, I and I want to leave some for for the listeners. They they can read about it. Uh, I, I thought it was particularly fulfilling uh, when they defeated Kentucky. I, I think that was <laughs> <laughs> that's the game that everybody remembers. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I, it was an amazing uh, thing. Yeah, I, I think you do a, a really good job of just setting up the the juxtaposition of you know yeah. those those two teams when kentucky when yeah I, I won't say too much about it but when when kentucky comes to new york to play the city college beavers it's it's uh it's more than just a basketball game uh you know it took on it took on great uh additional meaning but as you say we won't we won't spoil for the readers what what happens yeah. Uh, my next question was, I, I'm curious if in, in researching this book, obviously, the the pervasiveness of this scandal, City College and, and these players were not the only ones uh, participating in, in point shaving. And one of the common refrains or one of, I guess, the common rationalizations why the players would do it is they saw everybody around them making so much money off the game of, of college basketball. And, mm. and here they are, you know, oftentimes, you know, broke college kids for lack of a better term. I, I'm, I'm curious if, yeah. Yeah. and how much you follow today's college athletics. I mean, it's, it, it seems like to me, it's like, wow, the, the uh -huh. more things change, yeah. the, the more things are exactly the same as they were, you know, 70 years totally. ago. Totally. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. No, that's a great question. You know, um, you know, I didn't want to talk about the present day in the book because I, I wanted to keep readers, you know, still, you know, living in that, in that past world. But, uh, boy, I couldn't help but think about 
the present day. And actually, I wrote a, uh, an article, an op-ed for the uh, USA Today about this very topic. You know, all the conditions that existed in 1951 that allowed for a point-shaving scandal in college basketball are far worse today than they were back then, you know. I mean, I talked to one of these guys, and he said to me, you know, and by the way, the players all had very different rationales for why they did what they did, you know. Um, some of them did it from peer pressure, right? One guy said, you know, I, I just wanted the other guys to like me, and that's why I did it, you know. Some of them did it because they were poor and they wanted, you know, to help their parents pay off the mortgage that they saw their parents fretting over every night at the kitchen table, you know. So they all had different reasons. But one guy that I talked to, he said to me, look, he said, you know, I go into play at the garden and it would be full, 18,000 people. Um, and I think every one of those people paid to get in here tonight. And where did that money go? He said, it didn't go to me. You know, I was making five bucks a night scalping the complimentary tickets that I got, you know, standing out in front of the garden. So he thought as, an, you know, as like he was entitled to some of the money that they were making off of his talents. Um, you know, people were getting rich off the game. Um, you know, the promoter for the garden, Ned Irish, when he began promoting college basketball, an amateur game in 1934, he was making 48 bucks a week. By 1950, he was earning $150,000 a year and lived in a big apartment on Park Avenue, you know, off of this amateur game played by kids. Well, he, he had become a rich man. Um, but, it, but having said that, uh, the situation is far worse today. You know, Nat Holman, the legendary Nat Holman, was making $8,500 a year to coach the City College basketball team, that's equivalent to about $90,000 today. Well, John Calipari makes over $7 million a year, you know, as, as coach of Kentucky. Mike Krzyzewski, also over $7 million a year. There are 69 Division One men's college basketball coaches making over a million dollars a year in salary, right? You know, these coaches are the highest paid state employees, you know, in their states, in their respective states. You know, you have the, the NCAA signed an $8.8 billion TV contract, $8.8 billion for, for basketball. Um, you know, the colleges are making millions from sneaker companies, you know, to promote their products where the players become kind of walking advertisements you know, for their products, you know, like NASCAR cars, you know, with ads all over. Um, you know, the, the amount of money that's flowing through the college game is enormous. And, you know, the, the, the juxtaposition, you know, when you think about it, these, these, these college players are in a situation that's almost unique in American society, where you have a group of talented young guys who are able to make enormous profits for other people, but are not allowed to partake of any of it themselves. And as long as you have that situation with huge amounts of money flowing through the game on the, on the back of these guys' talents, and then not being able to touch any of it, you're always going to have uh, a field that's ripe for a culture of bribery. And in fact, you know, after the 1950 scandal, 
people said, well, you know, we, we got 33 guys. We've rooted out the problem. We've rooted out point shaving and college basketball. But then there was another scandal in 1961. And then there was another scandal in 1979 and another one in the 80s and another one in the 90s. Um, and, you know, none of the conditions that allowed that stuff to happen um, yeah, have changed. I, I think you know, and, and this is just strictly my opinion, but it, it almost seems like I, the the phrase you said, conditions that make it ripe for bribery. It would seem to me that the bulk of quote unquote bribery that that may or may not be occurring is has, has almost switched from you know, there, it's not in point shaving, and it's not necessarily coming from organized crime or, or anything like that it's you, you know as, as we saw the, the the case just last year it's it's coming from the coaches and the schools themselves now uh and, and they're delivering money mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah. like at kentucky like at kentucky and uh, not no at louisville rather with the you know you know you have a situation right obviously i mean there's all kinds of uh corruption you know that exists uh and some of it as you say you know goes on where the you know, the colleges are making so much money from having winning teams, you know, from, you know, endorsement deals and TV contracts and so forth. You know, there are inducements to players to come to, you know, to the colleges uh, and so forth. So, you know, who knows exactly uh, what's what's going on. But uh, I, I would not be surprised if we end up seeing, you know, more and more of these kinds of, of uh, you know, payoff scandals. Going yeah, on. definitely. Or at least until the NCAA, in my opinion, makes makes some very necessary changes. Yeah. I mean, look, California, you know, passed a law, you know, that doesn't go into effect until 2023, you know, that said that college athletes have the right to their own likenesses, you know, that they can make money, you know, like when video games use their names and likenesses, you know. Uh, they can be paid for that. The NCAA opposed that strenuously, but they're, they're, they're sort of putting their finger to the wind and they see that that's the future. And I think that they'll probably come around to something like that in the future as well, although who knows. But, you know, that, you know, that just allows the players to go out and, and make a little bit of money off their likenesses. It doesn't touch any of the, of the money that the players are earning for the NCAA itself or for the colleges, you know, that, you know, that money is going to remain untouched. Um, you know, one of the great quotes from my book, a very prescient quote, I think, from, was from 1951 from a newspaper editorial that said, uh, the one fact that we refuse to face is that there are no amateurs in big-time college basketball. There were only underpaid professionals, um, you know. And that was 1951. Uh, it was a long time ago, and you know the situation has certainly only gotten, you know, worse today. It's it's a little bit outside the scope of your story, but City College, the the basketball today is now Division Three. Do you know uh, the the history or mm-hmm. when they made the move um, to essentially downgrade the the program from Division One? Yeah, after. Yeah, it was after the scandal. Okay, it was in direct response almost? Absolutely, direct response. You know, that that the scandal was so shocking to the college, um, to the administrators, faculty, the students. It was so shocking uh, 
that people really kind of, you know, you know, made a reappraisal and they said, wow, you know, we have created a culture, uh, you know, of big time basketball here that has led to this. And we no longer want that for our school. And they took their team out of Madison Square Garden. You know, all of their home games were played in Madison Square Garden, you know, not in the home gym. But they took the team out of the garden and brought it back to their small little college gym uh, to try to return the game to its roots. So City gave up its big time program, as did several of the other uh, colleges uh, who were involved in the scandal. You know, we haven't mentioned this yet, you know, but there were at the time there were five big time college programs, basketball programs in New York. Uh, City College, Manhattan College, NYU, and Long Island University. And then the fifth one was St. John's University. And that was the only school that was not touched by the scandal. The other four colleges all had players who were arrested and were uh, caught up in the scandal. St. John's managed to escape unscathed. I think, uh, as as I discuss in the book at some length, uh, in part based on documents that haven't been publicly revealed until now, there is very good reason to believe that St. John's was also involved um, in the scandal, but was protected by a police administration that was overwhelmingly Irish Catholic and very supportive of St. John's. You know, the police commissioner himself, William P. O'Brien, was a very close friend of the St. John's coach. Um, he was referred to in the papers as St. John's number one fan and would often sit, always, in fact, sit behind the St. John's bench, um, you know, in the front row and games at the Garden. Um, so there's a lot of reason to believe that St. John's was involved, but, but uh, you know, was protected. And they alone among those five basketball programs maintained uh, a big-time college basketball program and, and still has one to this day. So that's a legacy of that scandal. Well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that touches on, I mean, there, there's a whole other, uh, you know, part of this book, uh, the, the whole universe of how this scandal, as you mentioned in the beginning, not only affected the, the lower-level police ranks, but it, it rose up through all of city government. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, we could spend another hour just talking about that story. I, was, was that, did you find that, I'm, was that more difficult or was that better sourced? I, I'm curious between the, the basketball <laughs> side of the story and the political side. Yeah. Um, was one harder to report on than the other? Well, you know, when I first sold this book to my publisher, uh, it was purely on the basis of this basketball scandal um because that in itself you know is you know would be a a great book in itself but as i began to research the book i began to see that there was this whole other bookmaking scandal that was going on at the very same time that was centered around this guy who i mentioned earlier by the name of harry gross um you know you, you know i would go back and i would look on microfilm at these you know tabloid newspapers from the time and the front pages would be split between the basketball scandal on one side and the harry gross scandal on the other side and i began to think is it possible that there are two 
bookmaking scandals going on simultaneously in the same city, and there were no connections between them. Well, as it turned out, there were connections between them. And so little by little, I began to kind of piece together the way that these two stories are connected, that there really is, as I mentioned earlier, this vast web of corruption um, you know, in the city. Um, and that just that just turned the book into something you know way different than I had expected. You know, it really turned the book into a story not just of this basketball team, but really, you know, the city game refers not just to the kind of game that was played at City College, but also to the way that cities work, you know, or the way that New York worked back then in the middle years of the 20th century. And a lot of it had to do with payoffs, you know, with with Greece, with bribes. Um, and and it went all the way uh, to the top uh, of the government, to the very top of the government. And, you know, it involved politicians, it involved police, it involved church, it involved colleges, it involved, you know, all the major institutions of the city um, in scandal. Uh, and a lot of it was fueled by money that was that was coming from illegal sports betting. It's uh, it, it's a, a a great book. It's a fascinating story. There are so many rich characters. I, I mean, people that you feel sympathetic for, people that you know you, you kind of hope what they get what's coming to them i it i I cannot recommend it enough uh matthew is there a good is there a preference from you where people can can pick up the book or or is it just anywhere that they buy books oh thanks you know no the book is available everywhere it's available you know on amazon it's it should be available in local bookstores uh you know it's available uh as an ebook uh audio book so, you know, wherever people get their books, uh, it should be available. I, I, I so appreciate it. No, thank you. I, the, I should have asked you this from the very start, but are, are, were you a basketball fan before writing this story? Are you a basketball fan? Uh, yes, yes, yes. No, I grew up in New York. Uh, you know, I got spoiled early on. The first teams that I kind of knew were the great, <laughs> the great New York Knicks teams of the late 60s, early 70s. That's what I, you know, when I was just a kid. You know, I fell in love with, uh, you know, Clyde Frazier and uh, Bill Bradley and Willis Reed and Earl Monroe and Dick Barnett, all Dave DeBusher, all those guys. They play, you know, their coach, by the way, Red Holtzman, was a student, was a player of Nat Holman at City College. And as it turned out, they were playing very much the kind of team oriented game that Red had learned from Nat Holman um, at City College. But but they were the teams that uh, that I first fell in love with, and uh, of course, it's been many, many decades of decline. <laughs> yes. for yeah, I was gonna say I'm, I'm, <laughs> ever since then, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry for your yeah. current uh, situation. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, well, well, thank you so much for the time. I I so enjoyed this conversation, and uh, it's it's the city game triumph scandal and a legendary basketball team. I can't recommend it enough, Matthew. Thank you so much for your time, and and, and thanks for this book. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate. it.
strap. Yeah. I remember nights. I didn't remember nights. I damn near went crazy. I had to get it right. Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper. The absolute truth. Yeah, no joke. Who